from east to west and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to our new series on the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt. I'm your host, Michael Bowling, and I'm joined by my co host and producer, Craig Williams. Hey, everyone. Hey, Craig. Well, this is a um, this is exciting. We're here at the birth of a brand new Diz Unplugged podcast show. I know. It's only uh, my second time that I actually can say I've been a part of a first show. So just this and uh, my Universal show. So. This is exciting. It's a- so so people don't have to go into the archives to catch up. I know that's it's you know it's the best thing and for people who aren't getting uh, on board right away and they're listening to this like 10 years into the future uh I, I don't know what you were thinking so. <laughs> really and and I'm buried beneath pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland eh, let's not go there <laughs> anyway so for listeners of the Diz Unplugged Orlando show you may not know who I am I'm part of the Diz Unplugged Disneyland podcast team, along with Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata-Willie, Tony Spatel, and our host, Tom Bell, where we talk about Disneyland, Southern California attractions, and the Walt Disney Family Museum events in San Francisco. Oh, you may have seen me uh, as a part of the Diz's team coverage on the last two D23 Expos and the recent Disneyland 7 and 7 reviews. I'm also the historian for the Diz and focus on Disney history on the Disneyland podcast. So, Craig, would you like to introduce yourself to listeners who might be hearing you for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for those of you out there who do uh, watch or listen to the Walt Disney World show, you should know uh, so, so much more about me. Uh, And uh, if you've never paid attention to what I've talked about, then shame on you again. Uh, But no, for everyone who's not really uh, informed with me, I am... Uh, currently the producer of the Diz Unplugged and I am in charge of video and I essentially just I, I run around with a camera like a crazy person at all the Disney parks and uh, if you've if you've seen any of our videos on YouTube there's a chance that I've had a hand in it and uh, especially the ones with Disneyland I love going out there and doing as much as I can with video uh, especially uh, like this past uh, year with the 60th anniversary being out there and seeing all that for the first time my my goodness that was that was an experience that I'll never forget but uh no I uh, I came down here and I originally worked for Disney as part of the college program before then uh, moving over to uh, the dark side as everyone calls it but I absolutely hate to Universal Orlando where I spent a great amount of time there and uh, really really build up uh, myself quickly there. But then whenever I was getting ready to move on to another position with Universal, that's whenever uh, Pete plucked me out of there and brought me on board so I could start finally doing something uh, with my college degree that I worked so hard to get. And here I am now, all these years later. Yeah, and well, for me, I got into Disney fairly young, Um Back, I, I, back when Disneyland was celebrating its 
10th anniversary, its 10-sennial, Walt was considering restarting the Mickey Mouse Club because he saw it, uh, you know, go, having a new club for every generation. So to sort of test the waters, he we had a chapter of the Mickey Mouse Club at Disneyland in the 60s, and I was one of the Mouseketeers for that chapter. It, we didn't move on, and we did not get into television, unfortunately. Uh, the decision was made to re-syndicate the original club into 30-minute segments, um, as sort of, it was a little more cost-effective than starting up a new club. But they did have new clubs in the 70s and 80s, so they did carry on Walt's you know, original vision of having a, a new club for every generation. And then I went into teaching and, uh, and have enjoyed that, and I still continue to do that. And um, But I always had a great love for, uh, for Disney my whole life, and so... When I got to know folks on the Diz Unplugged, my wife and I traveled with them, um, and I started to go to the Walt Disney Family Museum a lot. Um, Pete invited me to write about some of the events on, about the Walt Disney Family Museum on the Diz blog. So I did that, and then oh, about it was on November 20th, 2013, Tom Bell, who's the host and producer of the Disneyland show, invited me on as a special guest to uh, report on the Walt Disney Family Museum. They were doing their very first major exhibition, which was on the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So I came on and did that. And about two weeks later, Tom invited me on again to, to be a full participant in the show and, and told me just to be fully prepared to take part in it. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if I'm being auditioned. So I went ahead and, you know, did that. And about two weeks later, I was um, Tom contacted me and offered me a position on um, on the Disneyland show. And gosh, was I think it's been, what, about a year um Pete um, made me a, a full team member of the the Diz Unplugged, mm -hmm. and I became the um, Disney historian for the show because that's my area of expertise on the Disneyland show. Um, I've been running two history series, the 60 Years of Disneyland and Windows on Main Street, where, we, where I talk about, I talk with people who actually have a window on Main Street or with people who worked closely with them. So our listeners who primarily visit Disney World have expressed interest in a show that covers the history of Walt Disney World, and that's why Craig and I are launching this new Diz Unplugged podcast, Connecting with Walt. And I'm super excited about this, because I mean, just in general, of doing more work with, uh, with history, it's something that you and I have been trying to accomplish for a while, basically since we've met each other and uh, mm -hmm. started working together we've we've been interested in history and we tried to uh get the our history series of videos going too and hopefully there's still time for for that and we we can make more time to do it but <laughs> at the same time i'm i'm so excited about this new podcast and really getting to dive into walt disney world history since that's I arguably know more about that than disneyland but i can't wait to see what new things i actually get to learn from you yeah, and and because you were a cast member at Disney World, I was one at Disneyland. You know, it, I'm looking forward to to learning a whole lot more about Disney World from you. Exactly. 
And and we chose October to inaugurate the series because on October 1st, 1971, the Walt Disney Resort officially opened. And this is the Walt Disney Resort I first visited when I was a teenager. It included the Magic Kingdom, Disney's Contemporary Resort, Disney's Polynesian Resort, and Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort and Campground. So happy 44th anniversary to Walt Disney World. And we're looking forward to the 45th anniversary celebration. Oh, yeah. Hopefully it'll be <laughs> just as good as the 40th anniversary. Yeah. Which, now, Craig... Oh, go ahead. No, that was a nightmare. So, I know. I mean, that was <laughs> Why before... Why was it a nightmare? It was before I was on the Diz team, but uh, I, I know Kevin still loves talking about it. Kevin Close on the Disney World show. And uh, his big criticism was they barely made any of like the special cupcakes that they were raving <laughs> on and on about it. And I just, I was there that night with my family and uh, they were promising that they were going to do a special version of wishes and, and they did deliver. Uh, it was wishes, but with a perimeter ending where they shoot the fireworks off from the 180 degree angle, which is really awesome to watch. But, uh, the park was, it had to be at near capacity if it didn't hit capacity. So it was just way too many people in there to watch a fireworks show that was really not that much more special for this anniversary that should have been massive and huge. So 45th anniversary, uh, I, I'll skip that and I'll wait for the 50th anniversary coming up in another couple of years. Oh, I don't know. I, I want to be there for the 45th. But the, the Disneyland learned from, from Kevin's lamenting because we had cupcakes and hours from morning till night at, at, at Disneyland and in every Disney Resort hotel. Yeah, that's what I saw <laughs> on social media. It looked insane. It was. And they were good. Yeah, good. So, so, um, so Craig, when did you first visit Disney World? Do you remember your first time? Oh, my gosh. Uh, in terms of remembering no i i don't really remember that's that's just a lack of me doing uh way too many harmful things to my brain with sports and other stuff but i know that i probably visited for the first time whenever i was just an infant first couple years old uh then my family started taking family vacations uh down to disney world every couple years Uh, i know i went whenever i was five seven and nine so that would have been uh 1992 94 96 and those are the classic years that i barely remember anything about but if i could go back in time these are the ones that i'd really 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 want to be there to remember them all over again because the this the pictures that i have of being there at this era it just uh, it's nostalgia if that's anything but then uh, we took a couple of years off at disney world and um, then in about 2000 well it was 2000 because we had the big 2000 celebration and that's whenever we started coming again more regularly and uh came every other year about that again but then my sister ended up becoming a cast member uh as part of the college program um and once she did that then all of a sudden it became uh, that we are coming down to Disney World a couple times a year. And I am completely sure that that's why I eventually made the decision to do the exact same. But no, Disney World has always been a big part of my life uh, for as long as I can remember. And uh, it's been cool to see it progress through the years. And I just, you know, I wish I could remember more, but 
I, I read a lot about it, so I remember it that way. <laughs> yeah, now for me, since Disneyland was my home park, I don't remember my first visit because I was one year old. But I do remember my first visit to Disney World because I was a teenager, and I had an aunt and uncle that li- who lived in Orlando, and so I visited them, and my aunt took me to Disney World, which is just the Magic Kingdom yeah. at the time. And the problem is she didn't care for going on attractions. Mm-hmm. And so we we did the people mover, and we did a few things like that. But I wanted to go on, you know, the, the Space Mountain, and yeah. I wanted to go on some of the other attractions. So I never did get to go on those until I went back years later. But I, I was amazed by its size primarily uh because mm -hmm. sorry what year was the first time that you actually got to visit um that's what i'm trying to think of it would have been 74 74 75 no no i would have been 73 would have been my first time very cool so anyway and yeah it was just the size is what amazed me because you know disneyland would fit in the parking lot it's it's very intimate. <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, whenever I get to Disneyland, it feels massive to me for some mm-hmm. reason. I mean, it, but that being said, the the new Walt Disney World, especially Magic Kingdom speaking uh, exclusively, it has become so concrete and lost a lot of that uh, that greenery that still takes over so much of Disneyland that the park is starting to feel bigger and bigger and bigger now to me than before. But, uh, you know, it, it always blows my mind when I hear people say how massive the Magic Kingdom alone feels because Disneyland just, it feels just as big, if not bigger to me. Yeah. I think, well, it's funny because when you think that Disneyland has more attractions than the Magic Kingdom and it's smaller, I think that's what gives it its bigness. And yeah, it does have a lushness. Yeah. It's not all flat. Uh, you, you know, we have vistas and things, um, and I think at Disney World it seems larger because it, uh, you know, there's space between the attractions. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the, the joke with us is you when you when you get off of an attraction, you're in the queue for the next one. <laughs> hey, I mean, it's good for people who like bouncing mm-hmm. from attraction to attraction. Yeah. So, so let's go back even further, though. I was at a D23 event last weekend, and the. And they, they have a new theme now. And their theme for this year is when did it start for you? Hmm. So so when when did when did Disney start for you, Craig? Oh my gosh. Uh you know, uh I kind of I think I have that eighties child syndrome, even though I was born in the late eighties, but I just I, I never grew up not knowing anything but Disney movies and, and Disney Channel because, you know, back then that's whenever Disney Channel would, uh, it was still a paid service, not free like it is today, so my parents did that for us, so we'd have some more uh, so we'd have some more healthy television to watch than some of the stuff that was on Nickelodeon at the time, even though we got into that as well, but Disney has just always been there, and I've always been obsessed with the movies, and uh, then whenever then whenever we got to visit Disney World, then it added that element onto it. And then after that, uh, for a while in the 90s there, Disney was putting a lot of, uh, a lot of Disney World-related content on the Disney Channel. As I believe there was a series called 
uh, Walt Disney World Inside Out that George yes. Foreman was even a part of for a while. And so like having that little bits and pieces to take in while we were at home and we couldn't be there, it just it fueled all of it even more. So, yeah, Disney has just always captivated me from the absolute start, definitely with the movies. And uh, and then it just fluctuates at this point. Then it goes back and forth from the parks to the movies and even uh, even just now I have an obsession with collecting every art book that I can and just really diving into the artwork behind everything, whether it is the parks or movies. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's clear that Disney has enveloped my life since I've started working with the Diz, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, it started early. Like I said, it, you know, I went to Disneyland when I was one year old, but as Pete said, when we did the Disneyland seven and seven, you know, Disney growing up in California, Disneyland was a part of California culture. I mean, you, you went there like once a year, at least for a vacation yeah. or once every couple of years, but I'm of the generation who grew up with Walt, Disney on television every week and 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 you know and yeah it was Disney films in the theaters I remember one of my earliest memories my father went away on a on a rare business trip and he had promised he'd bring something back for me and when he came home he came home very late but I was staying up late and so um you know I asked him oh what did you bring me I remember he brought me a little golden book of Sleeping Beauty and a Disney Sleeping Beauty and I was so excited and all that so uh that's my first probably Disney memory that's awesome and yeah and um Anyway, so yeah, it's just, and it's also just been part of my life forever. I mean, I'm sitting in my study, which is also the studio, and I'm, I have a giant Mickey Mouse chair oh, in yes. my room from Walt Disney World, and you know, I'm surrounded by Sorcerer Mickey items and things like that. That, I mean, that chair, it's just so funny to think that it came all the way from here, went out to D23 to just go home with you. I know, I know. Isn't that funny? And we're we're waiting to see if in the next D twenty three Expo, if Peter John are going to want us to bring it back down. <laughs> It'll so, cost them. Yeah. yeah. Now, now you might be asking, why is this show called Connecting with Walt? And Connecting with Walt, uh, we're going to delve into the motivations, innovations, and creativity of Walt Disney, um, his Imagineers, the artists, and animators by exploring the backstories and history of not just the Disney theme parks and resorts and attractions. We're going to look into live action and animated films and and other noteworthy events in the Disney company history. Um, But each segment topic will always connect with Walt Disney's philosophy, planning, foresight, and imagination. Because you'll be surprised at even things modern day, even such as Pandora, you know, the land of Avatar, will have a connection back to Walt, either his philosophy or his vision. And those are the kind of things we're always going to explore, that it always goes back to Walt. This is also going to be a slightly different podcast than the other Diz Unplugged shows. Four to five episodes of Connecting with Watt will be released every three months on Fridays as an audio podcast. So we're not going to be a weekly podcast. We're going to be an event podcast. So every three months, you're going to get a full month of us. And then you'll have to wait another three months. And then and then we'll have another full month of podcasts. And 
One of the reasons for this is that it enables us to tie the segments together in a common topic or or present a theme month. Um, for example, we could do a series of segments on Disney films or Disney attractions having noteworthy anniversaries in a year. And But what we're really going to start looking at first is uh, Walt Disney World and how did it come to be. So what was Walt's inspiration for Disney World? Now, Walt passed away before Disney World was built, you know, on December 15, 1966, at the age of 65 of lung cancer after a lifetime of smoking unfiltered Lucky Strike cigarettes. And Edith Efron in TV Guide wrote, he is one of the few men in show business whose name stands for something significantly larger than their work. To say Walt Disney is to pay subtle compliment to the human race. And science fiction author Ray Bradbury remembered a time when Walt told him, nothing has to die. And Bradbury wrote, Walt was right. Nothing has to die. Just rebuild it. Steamboat America lost? Carve a river bottom, flood it, and send your Mark Twain paddle wheel down the riverway. Victorian train travel gone? Nail up a Rococo scrimshaw Try saying that fast. (laughs) Nail up a Rococo scrimshaw station, steam in a 19th century locomotive, and carry passengers from Civil War territories through African jungles into AD 2000. Disneyland was a way to live forever, and that included Walt himself. Hmm. Now, Roy O. Disney stepped in and said shortly after his brother's death, All of the plans that Walt had begun will continue to move ahead without interruption. Roy was confident in the company he and his brother had built over a lifetime. Talking about his brother, Roy O. Disney said, He was the damnest planner I ever saw. He loved planning things that might be three, five, ten years in the future. That's what was so unusual about the fellow. He could take care of matters at hand while dreaming about the future. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, talking about like planning and all this stuff. I know it's it's slightly controversial to some of us out there, but I I feel like uh, the PBS special, um, it it really did show off this side, especially that back half of the episode whenever it started really diving into Walt Disney World and and well, even more of the construction of Disneyland and then into the initial planning on Epcot. I mean, just. The way he saw stuff, the way he planned stuff, um, even though that documentary wasn't well-rounded enough, uh, you can't you can't argue that Walt Disney was a genius in terms of planning, and he he kept the good people around him to make him even better. So, oh, absolutely. And what's amazing is as we get as we get more into our series, we're going to find out that Walt was thinking of Epcot. This he would go back and forth calling it the you know, the prototype city of tomorrow or community of tomorrow. He was thinking about this way before uh, they even dreamt of starting to get the land. It was fermenting in his head what he wanted to do, what his plans were. And we're going to look at some of even what he built at Disneyland was a testing ground for what was going to be in Epcot. I'm excited for that then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, now speaking of Disneyland, Disneyland was Walt's personal project. Um, it was what was unique about it is that it was one man's vision who had the singular ability to persuade others, like you were saying, Craig, to go along with him on his personal journey. Um, Walt found it found talented artists who could visualize and implement his ideas. Um, the park reflected one man's tastes and choices, and Walt made all the decisions. And could it survive when its father and guiding light was lost? And and I always have said if if there if Walt had one fault, it was that he did everything. Everything was centralized with him, and when he was gone. People didn't know what to do. And it was like Roy Disney said, Roy O. Disney said, if Walt had not had plans laid out for three to five years, I think the Disney company really would have had a rough go of it after Walt died. Because they really did ride out those first few years um, carrying out everything he had already planned. And that's so scary to think of, just because I've, I've not known Disneyland for a very long time at all. I went once in 1999, uh, and then it might have, yeah, it was 1999, and then I didn't go back until I started working with the Diz, and now I've been back many, many times, and I, I will always be the first volunteer to go back to Disneyland anytime I'm given the opportunity, but uh, in general, though, like, I just... I can't imagine that there was ever any issues for it because I walk into that park and it's so magical. And the fact that there was this turmoil and wondering what they would do, it's just, it's mind boggling. But at the same time, they figured it out because it's the happiest place on earth. Yeah. It still is. And they did. And, and it's sort of, they needed maybe that time to carry out Walt's plans as they started to think ahead for their, you know, what was going to go beyond mm-hmm you know, Walt, you know, after Disney. Exactly. You know? So now, now Disneyland, though, was the starting point for Walt's secret project, as we've been alluding to, that had been consuming much of his time and interest in the last years of his life. Now, with the success of Disneyland, Walt was almost immediately confronted with two problems. The first was the urban design problems that had developed outside the perimeter of the park. Um, Walt was horrified by the lack of cohesion the Anaheim City Council had shown when granting building permits for the cheap motor inns and fast food restaurants that had created an urban clutter. And it it was much worse back then than it is now, where they've tried to beautify it. Um, He was mystified that those who profited off the guests at Disneyland didn't follow the aesthetics and planning precedent of Disneyland in their endeavors. And the second problem was Walt being constantly approached about building a Disneyland replica in another part of the country. Um, However, Walt wanted more than just a second theme park. He produced sequels to films carefully and thoughtfully, and then only if there was an interesting new story to tell. Walt had built Disneyland in the face of opposition, skepticism, and financial challenges. So now that it was successful, he wasn't interested in merely repeating himself. So the spark of inspiration, uh, well, well, even before that, Walt's opposition to a second Disneyland did get weakened as his organization organization at WED, which is now we know as WED Imagineering, matured in its skills. 
Walt saw something beyond simply duplicating Disneyland, and he concluded that another Disneyland could be used as the weenie to accomplish his greater vision. And that's planning and building a new kind of city that would show how people could live in a clean, handsome, and stimulating community. And I don't believe you're talking about celebration, because I don't think anyone would call that clean, handsome, or stimulating. You know, I've never been there. <laughs> oh, Michael, I'll have to I'll have to take you the next time you're out there. It's it is a lovely town and I'm not saying anything bad about it, but uh I you know, celebration was huge in the 90s because everyone thought that this was like this was that Disney town. This was mm-hmm. this was it. And then, you know, now since I've been here, then I look at it. It's uh it, it's not that utopia that you would expect. And at some points, like the movie theater that hasn't been used in years, it's a bit run down. I don't think that would ever be in a Walt Disney plan for yeah. anything. No, And Disney divested itself of celebration, didn't it? Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. That was, that was sort of Michael Eisner's attempt at building the Epcot community. Yep. And there were, there were a few elements that was more like the um, more like the the CCNRs mm-hmm. that um, that did hail back to some of Walt's concepts for Epcot, but the spark of inf- inspiration for this city might be traced to the design and construction of Walt Disney's Burbank Studio in the late 1930s, because Walt planned the Burbank facility in every detail, down to the contour of the animator's chair. Um, Disneyland was also the product of Walt's meticulous planning, and within the berm of the park, it worked. But Walt was appalled by how the promoters made what he called a second-rate Las Vegas out of the surrounding area. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, after spending his adult life in Los Angeles, because we all know that he went there in 1923 for D23, Walt had witnessed how the automobile had changed a sunny, attractive town into a concrete, paved, smoke-choked metropolis. So he wanted to combat the use of, uh, combat the tyranny of the car and restore a degree of the comfortable life his generation had known earlier in the century. Hmm. So the secret project of Walt's would be Walt Disney's very greatest. This was his legacy. It was called Project X, and Walt envisioned it as the home of his most passionate dream, his future city, the community of tomorrow. Now, Walt always liked to provide guests with a preview of what they would see with all his projects. So, uh, for example, if you saw um, Saving Mr. Banks, you know, when at the scene where they visit Disneyland, you see that there were attraction posters once lining the front entrance of Disneyland in front of the Mickey Mouse flowered mural. And then they also lined the tunnel entrances to Disneyland. Walt did this to to give guests a preview of what to expect within Disneyland, much as the attraction posters in a th- in front of a theater let exactly. you know what's going on inside the theater. Oh, and I wish they would still do uh, both Disneyland and Walt Disney World. I wish they would put the posters out front like that again instead of inside the tunnels. I mean, that's great, but uh, looking at those old pictures of it lining up around there, it's just it's classy. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in many ways, the 1967 reimagining of Disneyland's Tomorrowland gave guests a preview of what Walt was contemplating for his community of tomorrow in Florida. Disneyland's 1967 Tomorrowland was called A World on the Move, and the architecture from the people mover beamways to the curves of the buildings were all very organic. I mean, it, the people, the the beamways of the people mover almost looked like they were growing out of the ground. Um, um, so, well, can I ask mm-hmm. you a question on that? But is, yeah. so I know obviously the people mover ended up becoming uh, rocket rods for a time, but all the beams was anything changed for that, or is that still all of the original track from that, all the way back then? That's the original track, which is why Rocket Rods was unsuccessful. <laughs> well, then I, I completely agree with your words here. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful still looking at those, mm-hmm. despite, well, there's nothing on them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now now this Tomorrowland featured the now signature clean, crisp, white, mid-century modern structures that gave the area an aesthetic of flight and the United States space program. So in this Tomorrowland, and, and Craig, have you seen like photos or videos of the 67 Tomorrowland? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there was a variety of transportation technologies on several levels that gave this realm the theme of a world on the move. So, you know, high above Tomorrowland were the Astro Orbiter spinning rockets and the Skyway. And then just below those attractions was the perpetually moving people mover on its curved pylons, and then the sleek monorail train of the future. And then at ground level with the guests was Atopia. And then below the guests and beneath the water were the submarines. Mm. So so the design of Tomorrowland was really incredible, where the Imagineers had to layer all these attractions. I honestly never thought about how much transportation was solely right in there. It just it never dawned on me. Yeah. I mean, everything moved when you see the videos of this. Even the Carousel of Progress building moved as it rotated from scene to scene. So the movement in this land was an attraction in itself. And in his Community of Tomorrow, Walt determined the people mover and the monorail would be the backbones of transportation throughout the entire community. Now, another preview of what this community of tomorrow would be was Walt Disney's vision for tomorrow, his vision for the future. And I was at a recent presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, where producer and director Brad Bird, who we all know him for his work on Pixar films. And? And Tomorrowland. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The film Tomorrowland. Of course, yes talked about the change in our society's vision for the future. Did you like the film Tomorrowland? Uh, I originally whenever I saw it, I enjoyed it and then after some reflecting and after I wrote a review on it, I I started disliking it more in my head, but then uh, recently I was Oh, I want to say maybe on the way back from California from D23, I watched it on the airplane and I, I enjoyed it. Again, it still has some flaws in it. And I think the the Blu-ray coming out soon that will actually have deleted scenes and start connecting those pieces of Walt that they took out, I think then it could make for a more well-rounded movie. Uh, I would rather see them all in the places that they're going to be instead of just as deleted scenes. But I don't think they have any plans on doing that director's cut as of right now. 
Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I enjoyed it very much. And um, yeah, I was disappointed with what must have been left on the cutting room floor. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing it yeah, again. Just thank goodness we live in a day where we do have special features that we're still able to go back and see these things that really aren't meant for anyone else. Uh, just such a progression from VHS. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things that Brad Bird brought up was, you know, in my day when I was a boy, um, the future was positive and full of possibilities. Um, and now and we saw that in television. We saw that in film. We saw that in our weekly readers with, you know, we were going to have flying cars and robot teachers and all this kind of stuff. But now when you look at our entertainment that deals with the future, we seem to have accepted an apocalyptic future. Mm. So it's almost as if, you know, we had better enjoy the good times now. And so in his presentation, Bradbury discussed this change in our view of the future, and he theorized that our society's positive concept of a positive future, open to all possibilities, was tied directly to Walt Disney's vision of a great big beautiful tomorrow. Because at that time, we believed what Walt Disney said. We're going places and there's progress ahead. And when you think about it, you know, people talk about all the turmoil in the world now. Well, when you think back to like in the 50s and 60s when I was young, it was the height of the Cold War. It was the Cuban Missile Crisis, which brought us to the brink of nuclear war. Um, was You know, it was playing yeah. out. The world was just as imperfect then as now. But then everyone agreed would solve the problems and rise above them. Yeah, we do have a very passive outlook on everything right now. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems like, uh, especially in terms of what you were saying with the great big beautiful tomorrow and uh, that apocalyptic future, it just, uh, even down to simple stuff like technology. I mean, uh, the classic example is a, a flying car. And it seemed like just looking at movies and stuff from the past about like, oh, one day there might be flying cars. And it's it's possible to get there one day. Now ours is, well, yeah, I don't foresee that ever happening. So who's trying? And yeah, hopefully there are people still out there trying for that stuff. But I is it likely? Or are we just all negative and very passive on wanting to do anything about it anymore? Yeah, and now everything is about the um, you know, the post nuclear war world. Yeah. And well, yeah. hopefully that never happens. Fingers yeah, crossed. Really. Yeah, but uh, but again, I think it goes back to to what Brad Bird was positing is that our sense of the future was tied to Walt Disney. You think about who was Walt Disney? He was a man whose favorite president was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a progressive. Um, Walt was suspicious of banks. Um, for proof, look to how bankers are portrayed in the Mary Poppins story arc of a man valuing his business over his children. Um, Walt loved nature and was a conservationist. Uh, he 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 started the whole nature films. Um, if if you listen to my segment on the Disneyland show I did a couple years ago on the Mineral King ski resort project, first and foremost, Walt wanted it to uh, to um, sort of blend in with the natural surroundings and the nature, so that you wouldn't even see the ski resort from a distance. Um, Walt Disney loved advancement and was an innovator. Um, Bradbird outlined several examples 
of this through Walt Disney's many achievements, including, you know, Walt did the first sound cartoons, um, the first Technicolor cartoons, the first cartoon without dialogue, which is the Silly Symphony Skeleton Dance. Um, he designed the multiplane camera to create depth in his characters. And when you think about it, look at Snow White, rewatch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Is there a film that looks as breathtaking and cool as 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Nope. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah mine too. Uh, even when I was watching those clips on, on the PBS series on Walt Disney, it just reminded me what a dazzling film that continues to be oh yeah it's it's one of my sick day movies so anytime mm-hmm. i'm not feeling well uh which isn't often but anytime i am i i, I seem to always want to just put that on and watch it for a while yeah yeah now fantasia think of that it didn't have a narrative and it was recorded in stereo sound called Fantasound, which is now considered to be the predecessor of surround sound. So um, Wald had Fantasound installed in five theaters, but with the start of World War II and the closing of the overseas market, um, Fantasound was halted. Mm-hmm. Now, Walt believed Fantasia would never be completed as segments would be added and removed over the years. And this sounds just like Disneyland and how it would never be completed so long as there was imagination left in the world. Random, but when do you think we'll see the next part of Fantasia coming out, if ever? I, I would be surprised if we ever did, unless John Lasseter really felt motivated to do it. And I feel like he's the person who would get it done. So, yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So. Um, then Brad Bird went on to talk about Walt Disney's vision as a science fiction storyteller. And you think, well, wait, Walt Disney didn't make science fiction feature films. But whilst other fil- studios were doing Forbidden Planet, um, When the Earth Stood Still and War of the Worlds, which are all excellent films, amongst my favorite as a boy, um, Walt was producing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in cinemascope and stereophonic sound. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, to this day, uh, Forbidden Planet's still great. And uh, When the Earth Stood Still and World of the Worlds are all classics. But 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is, I mean, it's just beautiful cinema compared to all of those so uh, that says a lot but i I don't know if you were going to talk about it but even though we didn't get the feature films really with a lot of science fiction at least uh he did have some of the pieces that were made for uh the television series Mm -hmm. so right yeah we're gonna yeah we'll get into that because that really is where his um science fiction storytelling could be seen So, yeah, so while most of the other studios' films were apocalyptic in theme, like all the ones that we just mentioned, but Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ends with Captain Nemo saying, There is hope for the future. When the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass in God's good time. Again, this is a reflection of Walt's positive outlook for the future. And like you were saying, Craig, Walt Disney's science fiction storytelling could be seen in his weekly television show, in which he presented science episodes regularly. Yeah. And, and of course, the most famous, you're probably thinking the same thing, are Ward Kimball's Man in Space series. Yep. Yeah, and, and that was adapted for classroom use, and, and a print was requested by President Eisenhower to screen at the Pentagon. 
And take a look at those because when when you watch that that series of films, and they're available on the Walt Disney Treasures series in the tins, yep. uh, and then think of our Moon Mission and our Shuttle program. There's a there's a tremendous amount of similarities. Oh yeah, no, it, um, these are beautiful, and I highly recommend getting that Tomorrowland tin uh, about the whole space series in it and uh, you can actually still find new unsealed copies of it on ebay for Mm -hmm. uh, reasonable prices i almost i don't have this one uh unsealed at all and i almost uh bought it a couple weeks ago for only like 20 dollars, brand new still so they're out there if you're really invested in learning more about the past or you can rent them on netflix sometimes yeah and definitely it's worth it those those are amongst the best I think in that series. No, perhaps the most significant accomplishment of Walt Disney, and it wasn't in the PBS series, was audio animatronics. Um, With shows like the Carousel of Progress, Walt created shows that performed endlessly. The Robin and Mary Poppins was the first audio animatronic figure in a film. And audio animatronic changed films. I mean, Craig, could films like E.T. Jurassic Park and, and this... Like, could they have been made without audio animatronics? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, you, there's also stories out there about huge flubs whenever you're trying to use audio animatronics with movies, uh, you know, Jaws. So, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's, yeah, that, that Robin, uh, there's a special feature. I want to say it's maybe on the Mary Poppins Blu ray or maybe even the Saving Mr. Banks one. It's out there somewhere, but they showed how the whole technology in getting running the cords through her and just getting that thing to work. And no, it, 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 that was such a big change. And, you know, at the end of the day, say whatever you want about Disneyland, anything, Walt Disney, one of his biggest legacies of all was audio animatronics because it's been Mm -hmm. adapted into so many things beyond just Disney. Yeah, there's a there's a funny story that that uh, Julie Andrews told where because of the way the robin was you know on her arm and all yeah. that she had to always keep her arm elevated so even in between takes so there's this great scene of her where it's in between takes she's sitting reading a newspaper in one hand with her arm in the air <laughs> holding the robin that's great <laughs> because she couldn't put her arm down <laughs> so, now um Now, Brad Bird then went on to talk about Walt Disney as a futurist. So, in a 1958 segment of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, Walt explored what the future would look like. And it would be very centered around the highway and how cars and highways allowed people to move around freely. But even back in 1958, Walt expressed concern over the increasingly crowded highways. So as I mentioned earlier, Walt could express his vision of the future in Disneyland's Tomorrowland, and this is the one realm of the park that continually needs to be rebuilt and reimagined because the future is always changing. Yep. And this frustrates the businessmen in the Walt Disney Corporation because Tomorrowland requires frequent updating. So the the businessmen try to lock this down. In in Disneyland Paris, they themed it they themed Tomorrowland to Jules Verne and the tomorrow of the past. 
Um, in Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, they try to resolve this by relying heavily on science fantasy, like Star Tours, Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters, Stitch's Great Escape, and you know the monsters in Glass Floor. <sighs> because that is the world of tomorrow. Yes, yes, monsters telling jokes. Exactly. <laughs> Now, I and Brad Bird do agree that the best Tomorrowland ever built is the 1967 Disneyland Tomorrowland, and this was the last project supervised by Walt Disney. So to round this out, Walt Disney's vision for the future molded the plans for his experimental prototype community of tomorrow, Epcot. And since the beginning of Disneyland, urban planners were impressed with how Disneyland handled crowds, was clean, and the rides handled large numbers of people. So for his Florida project, Walt purchased 27,400 acres of land, or 43 square miles. That's twice the size of Manhattan, and one square mile larger than San Francisco. It blows my mind every time I hear that, considering mm -hmm. multiple times a week I'm driving all over that property, and you just never even put it together. I know, and since I was raised in San Francisco, that, that size means much more to me than Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, that's amazing. Yeah. So Now, there was a lot of nervousness about Disney having so much land. Um, environmentalists were concerned until they learned Disney standards were three to four times higher than government standards. And so, Walt Disney was ultimately given carte blanche to develop what he wanted on the land. And for Walt Disney... Money was the fuel to create and do new things. So as Walt developed his plans for the Florida project, at the heart of the project was always the environmental prototype community of tomorrow, Epcot, where they will always be testing and using new materials. It would be a showcase for ingenuity and industry to solve urban ills and dedicated to the happiness of those who work, live, and play there. So the most important part of Disney World, the whole reason for doing it, was never built. Epcot. Which is such a shame. Uh, you know, the, the closest thing we have to the Epcot that Walt wanted was whenever you go past it in our uh, Tomorrowland Transit Authority. And you see it just as you're driving by, and then there it goes. Right. Sad. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the Transportation and Ticket Center... That was all part of it, too, because yeah. he was going to have you, you were going to drive in and go to a central hub and then take monorails and people movers and all that out to the um, other areas. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Walt hoped Epcot would stimulate human ingenuity. And Brad Bird suggested, though, that we can keep the concept of Epcot alive by seeing Epcot as a challenge that we imagine. And I think he sort of brought this out in, that, in the Tomorrowland film. What we need to do is visualize the future we want and drive towards it with our actions and turn our society's vision of the future back to a positive one. So at the heart of our Connecting with Walt episodes is our goal to illustrate how Walt's vision continues to be reflected throughout the Disney organization even in modern-day projects. So throughout October, Craig and I hope you'll join us on our exploration of the early development of Walt's Florida project. Yay. 
Yeah. <laughs> it'll, be a, it'll be a fun journey I'm, together. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So next week in episode two, which is titled You Can't Top Pigs with Pigs, we'll examine several of the offers Walt received after the opening of Disneyland to build other Disneylands around the United States. And Walt politely turned the offers down because he disliked repeating himself. However, some offers piqued his interest, and we'll take a look at some of those proposals. In episode three, which is called The Search Ends and the Mystery Unfolds, we'll discuss the pressure Walt was under to either move forward or reject the proposals to build another park. After a November 1963 plane tour of potential sites, Walt made his decision, and Craig and I will examine that tour and how the Disney company secretly moved forward with the project and how it became public. In Episode 4, The Master Plan, we'll take a look at Walt Disney's vision for his Florida project, which included many of the resort amenities we're familiar with today, and we'll also examine Walt's concept for A City of the Future. To end the month of October with Episode 5, The Torch is Passed On, we'll discuss the effect Walt's passing had on the Florida project and how it progressed with his brother Roy O. Disney taking the project on as his crusade. So, I think we have a lot of exciting episodes coming up. Oh yeah, I already know. I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to contribute as much as I can, but... There's a lot that I still don't know, and I'm just so excited to learn. Good, yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> I have I have a whole pile of books right next to me <laughs> that I'm pouring through right My now. Gosh. I need to start getting <laughs> some audio books or something. <laughs> so I know I wish I could listen to them in my sleep and absorb <laughs> the, the information. We can only try. So, <laughs> so now, Craig. Until next time, where can our listeners find you? Oh, the the best place for people to find me is at my house, but I'm not going to tell you where that is. <laughs> um, so if you just want to find me anywhere else, well, social media is obviously the best place. So I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Teleclaster. Um, and then I'm also on Facebook, Craig Williams. If you're friends with one person on the Diz, uh, it, you'll easily be able to find me. I don't answer to requests that quickly so i i do apologize for that and then uh i am uh besides doing all the other shows that i do like the disney world show and the universal show um i'm also doing a lot of posts for all of the social media with the diz um on twitter and on facebook so uh yeah if you're if you're ever wanting to see stuff that I'm doing, even check out uh, the Diz on Instagram. The, we are Instagram.com slash the Diz and the dot Diz. My apologies. And uh, if everyone out there goes and follows that, I would be very appreciative of that. But, yep, those are all the places I'm at. What about you? And you have a lot of good photos on Instagram of Disneyland, Disney World, Universal. It's all well balanced. I, we try. We try. <laughs> Corey and I are the only people that typically ever put anything up on there and mm -hmm. we work hard but it's fun yeah well to understand walt disney world it is critical to understand walt disney and disneyland because without walt and disneyland there would be no walt disney world so i hope you will join me tom nancy mary joe and tony on the dis unplugged podcast disneyland edition um, we record the show live on mixler each sunday night at 8 p.m pacific time disneyland time 
Um, the show is available on Mondays with additional segments on Tuesdays. And for more about the history of Walt Disney and Disneyland, please check out my history segments on the Disneyland podcast archives. Craig, where can they find our archives? Uh, disunplug.com. Perfect. Right? Yeah, and you can... Right? Yeah. Uh, yes, that's that's <laughs> what I have saved. And um, and you can save me messages. You can send me messages um, at michael at wdwinfo.com. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at uh, it's mbowling121. And I'm also on Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. So you can find me in all kinds of places. And I live in a small town, so um, listeners actually do know where I live. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so, so Craig, do you have any final words? I uh, just thank, I want to thank everyone out there for taking the time to listen to this and hopefully everyone, uh, jumps on board with it because there's going to be so many good things to come with this. And, uh, most of all, thank you for taking the time to really do all of the grunt work on here and let me be a part of it. Cause I'm, I'm very excited about it. I am too. This has been great fun. And and for, for our listeners, please tell your friends, especially if they they're Disney fans and want to know a little more about about their favorite passion, Disney, and have them listen to the show. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Thank you. <laughs>